Well, to give a little bit of a review, I have mentioned this several times throughout the series, that salvation is such a, a majestic doctrine for so many different reasons, one of those being this unbroken arc that takes us from eternity past to eternity future, that salvation has always been part of God's plan. It's never been a plan B. It's never been something that God had to come up with the spur of the moment as a reaction to something that didn't happen His way. Rather, this, this act of redeeming a people unto Himself to the, to the praise of His glory who, who would be recipients of the glorious benefits of His attributes, this has always been His plan. And like I said, there is one unbroken arc that takes us from eternity past to eternity future. It's the plan of redemption. And in that plan, we have the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their uniquenesses and yet in their unity, all working together for this ultimate, this ultimate redemption. And when we look at the persons of the Trinity and their involvement in this work of salvation, on the one hand, we have to make sure that we don't split it all up as if to think that there are things that God the Father is not involved in that God the Son is, or things that God the Spirit is involved in that God the Son is not. No, the, the, there is one God and three persons, and, and they are all intricately and intimately involved, involved in everything about salvation from beginning to end. But Scripture does reveal that these, the persons of the Godhead do have unique roles and are revealed to us in unique ways in the, in the plan of salvation. And so, as we've mentioned already, when we think about the arrangement of redemption, the arrangement of this, this plan of redemption, uh, the Scriptures point to, to God the Father as being the one who before time planned redemption. And then as we look more at the Scriptures, we see that it is God the Son being sent by the Father to accomplish and achieve redemption, to make it possible, to make it real. And then we have God the Spirit who is especially involved in taking all that the Father planned and all that the Son achieved and in that personal way applying it to individuals. This is the majesty of salvation. As I said, an unbroken arc from eternity past to eternity future. The, the, the plan of salvation never having any hiccups along the way, any dead ends, any U-turns, all being worked out in, in a way to emphasize and to, to magnify the power of God. His wisdom and His glory in this wonderful work. And men, as, as, as we look at this doctrine more and more, and as we think of especially what's coming, as we're going to see tonight, uh, it is only going to get more glorious. Whatever we know right now is just a foretaste of the glories to come. 
So as we think of this in the big picture, I want to read a section out of MacArthur and Mayhew's book, Biblical Doctrine. And this is how they summarize this work. Quote, God's plan of redemption began in eternity past. As God the Father set His electing love on undeserving sinners, determining to rescue them from the fall and the deserved consequences of their disobedience. He appointed the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, to accomplish redemption on behalf of the elected by becoming man, by rendering perfect obedience to God as a man, and by dying as the substitute in the place of His people to pay the penalty for their sin. The Father and the Son have sent God the Holy Spirit to apply to the elect all the saving benefits that the Son purchased for His people. And we could take a, 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 a portion of Scripture like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14. It is the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. If you go back to the original language, this is the longest sentence you would find anywhere in the New Testament. It goes from Ephesians 1 verse 3 to the end of Ephesians 1 verse 14. One long sentence, 202 Greek words, and it is the most profound statement or summary on salvation that you'll find anywhere. It is it is powerful. It's as if as Paul began writing under the, the influence of the Holy Spirit, he could not put a period because as, as I've mentioned already, this is one long arc, unbroken, unhindered from eternity past to eternity future that describes and unfolds the majesty and power of God. And I won't read through it right now. We're going to look at a little bit of it tonight. But as we do look at it, you can see this wonderful plan, this, this, this structure develop. If you look at Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 6, you would see the emphasis on God the Father, on what He has done, particularly in His arrangement of redemption. Then if you would look at it further from verses 7 to 12, you would see Paul transition and focus the heart of this long sentence on God the Son. Verses 7 to 12, focusing on all that was done in Christ at a moment in time there in that, that life of Christ is perfect obedience, culminating in His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead three days later. And then you have it coming to a, a conclusion in verses 13 and 14 with a reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As Paul draws this to a close and ends with this forward-looking, future-looking view that has our final redemption in view and ultimately the praise of God's glory in view. Now as we look at this outline, we are in this, this part in our year-long study on salvation that is focused on the application of redemption. And so we're focusing on many of the works of the Holy Spirit. And tonight in particular, we're going to look at verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Because it's here we read of this concept of sealing. This concept of sealing. 
Let me read it already where Paul says, In Him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him, that is in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So when we talk about sealing, we're talking about a ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're focused on on the uniqueness of the Spirit's activity in, in, in applying the work of redemption to us. And I like what one theologian said in, in summarizing this work of the Spirit in the application of redemption when he wrote, the Holy Spirit, quote, is the person who by His working leads things to their destined goal and development. Likewise, in the kingdom of grace, the Holy Spirit is the one who leads the elect sinner to his destined goal and development by creating and maintaining new life in him. And sealing is is one of those aspects, one of those components of the Spirit's work. And as I said, we're going to be looking at this Tonight, and again, I take you back to Ephesians 1, 13-14, where we read these words, You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what does that mean? Why does the Apostle Paul use this picture to describe what happened to us at salvation? There's a purpose for it, and we're going to look at that tonight. Well, as we get into it, we have to start with some key terms and definitions again. What are the the key words associated with this ministry of the Holy Spirit, with this particular component of salvation? And these are are fascinating terms. We're going to look at two of them tonight. They're very important. The term sealing, the verb to seal, and the concept of pledge. We're going to see that these these terms are really word pictures that explain to us a component of salvation. They're interrelated. We're going to see that. Uh, But these are two different word pictures that help us understand a unique work of the Holy Spirit that should give us much comfort and encouragement in our Christian walk. Let's look at the first of these, sealing. What is this term, what does it mean? As I said, this is the first of, of two word pictures that Paul uses to describe a particular component of the Holy Spirit's work in applying redemption. And if we look at the New Testament, we will find this concept used with respect to the Spirit's sealing. We'll find it in three texts. The first one, if we look through our Bibles, in a, in a chronological way, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, says this, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Now, 
You see both, act, both concepts used there, but we're looking right now at the concept of sealing, and it's our first occurrence of this verb in the New Testament, who also sealed us. God also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts. A second text is the one that we've already read in Ephesians chapter 1, 13 to 14, where Paul says that having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then there's one more reference in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, where Paul says to the Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, these three texts, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 21-22, Ephesians 1, 13-14, and Ephesians 4, 30, all use the same term to describe something that was done by God, by means of the Spirit, to us. What is it? Well, to understand the concept of sealing, it is helpful to consider it in the, the, the backdrop from which this term was pulled. You see, this term sealing, the verbs and the nouns that are used uh, for this term are not unique to spiritual sealing. In fact, these are rather common terms, to seal or a seal. It was a common term, common terminology in the, 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 Greek, the Greco-Roman background. So, and this is fascinating, and take you back a little bit, and you don't need to remember some of these words, but catch on to the concepts. The Greek noun, uh, sphragis, sphragis is the, the uh, term that is translated as seal. It was used in two contexts, or in two different ways. They're related. That word is used to refer to the instrument that would make a seal, that would make an impression. So something like a signet ring. Even in Greco-Roman times, they would have a, a signet ring that would be used to press into hot wax or clay, soft clay. That was called a seal, the signet ring. And that signet ring had uniquenesses. It was a one-of-a-kind. It belonged to only one person, and it would be used to, to make an impression. The word seal was also used to refer to that impression itself. So, not just the instrument, but also what that instrument left. The impression itself was used to, uh, to, to, to or was, was referred to as a seal. And if you take it into our day, because there's not a lot of people today who would use a signet ring and hot wax to identify themselves, in our day it would be like a signature. The same idea. Signatures are unique. And for us, a signature identifies us. It leaves a testimony. It indicates identity. Who is it that this letter comes from? Look at the signature. Or who is it that made the contract? Look at the signature. That signature also emphasizes ownership. It's mine. The signature is on it. It's mine. Or it also communicates the idea of authority. Think of the seal or the signature of the President of the United States. It comes with authority. And maybe you're a boss and your signature has authority. When you sign a document, 
that has authority that other workers don't have. Now, that's the, that's the same idea as a seal in the Greco-Roman context. An interesting thing here I have on the screen is uh, an interesting signet ring that was found in the ancient city of Megiddo in Israel. In 1904, uh, an archaeologist found a, a jade signet ring, and it has a line on it, and the, the, the text that is inscribed there says, belonging to Shema, servant of Jeroboam. And scholars believe that this ring belonged to a certain servant in Jeroboam's court by the name of, of, of Shema. And this probably, most likely, relates to Jeroboam II, king of Israel, who reigned 787 to 747 BC, and you can read of him in 2 Corinthians 14, 23-29, not a, not, a, not a wholesome king by any stretch, but he had a, a servant named Shema, and so anything that Shema would have left, anywhere where he would have left this impression, whether it would be on a, on a letter that maybe, or a scroll that had wax on it, and he put his impression on it, or some clay that was used to seal a bag, that would leave identity. That would mark ownership. That would transfer authority. In the Greco-Roman world, this seal denoted ownership and authenticity, and thereby granted the protection of the owner, according to Gordon Fee. Now, that's the noun seal. We, we also have the verb to seal, so the action of, of sealing. And this is uh, also interesting to trace in the New Testament where this verb is used in, in the general sense. For one, it's used to testify to or to communicate the idea of providing a seal as, as a security measure. And we read of this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 66, when Matthew records that the, um, the, the soldiers went and made the grave in which Jesus was laid, they made it secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So they put the stone in front of the grave, they found some kind of plaster to put in a certain area around the, 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 where the, the one stone would come against the other, fastened that on there, and then, and then made a seal on there so that they would know if that plaster would be broken. So this is a way of, of, of using a seal as a security measure. It is also found in the sense of to close something up tight, to, to protect something. And we read of this in Revelation 22, verse 10, where the Lord, sa- where the Lord says to, the, to, to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is near. So negating this, don't take the words of this prophecy now and, and keep them closed and protected in a scroll. Don't do that. Don't. Close it up tight. Don't do that. The verb was also used to refer to certification or authorization, to certify that something was so. John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says this, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, the Son of Man, 
the Father, God, has set his seal. He has, you could put it this way, has set his authorization, has set his certification. That's another way to translate the verb to seal. A fourth one has this meaning, to seal something up for delivery. Another regular regular usage of the term has the idea of to guarantee. So in Romans chapter 15 verse 28, Paul talks about this collection. And he's explaining why he is going to Jerusalem and bringing this collection with him. And he says this, Therefore, when I have finished this, that is, passing the Gentile believer's financial gift to the church in Jerusalem, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. He's essentially saying he's going to bring the gift from the churches in in Greece. He's going to bring it to Jerusalem and he's going to certify, he's going to guarantee that everything that they gave is now passed on to them. That's the idea of guarantee. And then there's a final usage of this term and it has the idea of to mark in terms of identification. A seal a seal represented ownership. So in Revelation 7 verse 3, we read these words. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed, we have identified, we have shown ownership of the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So all that to say is this. The concept of sealing communicates the idea of ownership. It communicates the idea of a a guarantee. It it, it has the idea of protection, security, and authentication. Now with that in mind, we, we step back now and look at the concept of spiritual sealing. And ask ourselves the question, why does God move Paul to use this concept to refer to salvation? Why does God move Paul to to describe a part of salvation as that of sealing? And and the, the idea is for us to recognize, it's not that there's a literal physical seal that is imprinted upon us, But God wants us to understand that in the work of salvation, there is something spiritual that has taken place. And the very best way that we could use to describe it is to look at this practice of sealing. That's what has happened. So let's give a definition then of spiritual sealing. One is by Harold Honer in his commentary on Ephesians. He writes this, The sealing ministry of the Spirit is to identify believers as God's own and thus give them the security that they belong to Him. Let me read that again. The sealing ministry of the Spirit is to identify believers as God's own and thus give them the security that they belong to Him. Or another definition given by George Smeaton, he says this, quote, From the three passages where the term seal is expressly used, we gather that believers are God's inviolable property and known to be so by the Spirit dwelling in them. It's ownership. It's ownership. 
It's guarantee. There's another quote. Let me read this from Eldon Woodcock who writes, quote, Sealing with the Holy Spirit certifies God's ownership and the protection of His people. It happens at conversion when the Holy Spirit begins His indwelling. As a result of this action initiated by God, grounded on Christ's redemptive work and accomplished by the Holy Spirit, the salvation of believers is secured. Since believers are God's inviolable property, He will protect them. As a result, believers can enjoy complete security in their relationship with Him. Now that's the term to seal. I want to look at another term that's very closely related to it and is found in in some of the same contexts as the term of sealing. And it's the term pledge. Here's another word picture. It's the second of the two word pictures that are so closely associated here in, in describing this particular component of the Spirit's work in applying redemption. Here too, there are three New Testament texts, all in Paul's writings, three New Testament texts which refer to the Holy Spirit as a pledge. The first one is, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 21 and 22. Notice what Paul says here again. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So, He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Spirit as a pledge. These are two intertwined ideas. Another example is found a few chapters later in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 4-5. to Paul writes, For indeed, while we are in this tent, he's referring to this physical body, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed. We don't want to lose our physical bodies, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now get this. Now he who prepared us For this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Same term. And then we find it also in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. And we've, we've read through this already several times. Let me just highlight verse 14 where we read this, that the Holy Spirit of promise is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now again, to understand what Paul is communicating here, we have to think about about the the backdrop to this term. When when was it used in other contexts? It's the Greek word erabon. And it refers to that which was given as a deposit towards the full acquisition of a particular object. We do the same thing today. Let's say that I want to buy something. I may even have enough money to buy it. But I can't get it all yet. And so what I will do is I can make a down payment. I can make a deposit. 
And then when I come to get that object later on, I give the final payment. Now that's the idea that's, that's used here. In fact, in the Greek background, it was customary that they would give up to 50% of the, of the cost of the object. If it was a, a money pledge, they would give 50% of it. They wouldn't take possession of it just yet, of that object. They'd give 50%, get the remaining 50%, come back and give it to the seller. And, and at that point, the seller would hand over the object. Now, if you didn't come back with the full payment on time, according to the agreement, you forfeited whatever pledge, whatever deposit you made. You lost it. You you didn't get it back. You didn't get your 50% back, nor would you get the object. Just wasn't what they did. It's kind of the same thing today. You put a down payment on something, you renege on it, on 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 the agreement, you lose everything. That was the idea. Sometimes, with the pledge... It wasn't even money that was given. Some other valuable item would be given. In other words, if I wanted something you were selling, and I didn't have the money right now with me, or I'd give it later, depending on whatever agreement was made, I might give something of special value to me as a temporary kind of payment. And I would say, here, take this for now, and I'll come back later and I'll give you the full money. And then you'll give me back what I gave you as that temporary pledge. We do that today often. Sometimes, you know, you you forget something, you're paying for something, and you might leave something there to say, hey, I'll come back in a few minutes. Here, take this, and it's my commitment that I'm going to come by and I'll pay for it. We do that, we understand that. The key idea here is guarantee. It's a guarantee. A pledge is a guarantee. And God has chosen this concept as well to describe the Spirit's work in salvation as a means to communicate to us what He does for us. The Holy Spirit, the Scriptures say, is the pledge. He is the first installment. He is the guarantee of a final payment. And in this kind of understanding, as Paul wants us to understand, the full payment of the Spirit is still coming in the future age, and that final payment will arrive on that final, ultimate day of redemption. So how do we then define the pledge? We can define it this way. When we come across that term pledge in these, th- these three New Testament texts, First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and Ephesians 1, verse 14, we can understand it this way. The Spirit's role as a pledge is to demonstrate that the one who has ransomed the sinner has only just begun his work in that sinner, and that he will not fail to bring that work to final completion. And as evidence of that, He has said, here is my Holy Spirit. This is proof that I will complete my work. The Holy Spirit given to indwell the ransomed sinner. Again, Eldon Woodcock explains it this way. The believer's Erebon, his ransom, is an unsolicited 
or you could say an unmerited and gracious gift by the perfectly holy and completely faithful God who always fulfills His promises. Since His integrity and faithfulness are beyond question, this Erebon, this pledge was of course unnecessary as a device to discourage God from changing His mind or not taking His obligations seriously. God graciously led Paul to use this imagery that would assure believers of the reality of His guarantee. This Erebon, this pledge is God's assurance of His guarantee that He will certainly achieve His redemptive purpose. Now with all that said, let's take these two terms to seal and pledge and come up with a a systematic understanding of, 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 of the characteristics of this work of the Spirit. And I'm going to give you seven of them tonight. Quickly, we'll go through them. Number one, sealing is grounded in the atonement of Christ. The seal of the Holy Spirit is grounded in the atonement of Christ. We see this in Ephesians 1 verse 13, where we read this, that you, that is the believers, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And the Him there refers to Christ. That this act of the Holy Spirit takes place in Christ. And when we have a reference to that, we go back in Ephesians chapter 1 to to verses 7 to 12, and we read of the atonement of Christ and we, we take from it this idea that the sealing is possible only through its connection to Christ and the connection to the cross and everything that Christ accomplished there. There is no sealing of the Spirit that takes place outside of Christ. There's no sealing of the Spirit that takes place in a different religion. There's no sealing of the Spirit that takes place in the life of one who rejects Christ. It only takes place in association with and in the context of Christ and what He has accomplished on the cross. That is the only place where this sealing takes place. Secondly, sealing occurs at the moment of conversion. This is the timing of the Spirit's sealing. And sometimes you, you'll talk to Christians and they'll have wrong associations. They'll, they'll think of sealing as the same thing as baptism. And so some will say, well, I got to get baptized and that's the moment when the Spirit will seal me. There is no such association in the New Testament. Where, nowhere. That's, that's the, the, the inventions of men. Sealing is not associated with the human act of water baptism. Rather, the Scripture is clear that sealing occurs at the moment of conversion. Notice again Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, there's the hearing of the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed. And in the grammar there, it's very clear that these two things happen at the same time. You believed and you were sealed. Concurrently, simultaneously. 
That's the idea that, that Paul is communicating here. So according to chronology, according to time, this happens simultaneously with all the other things that happened during conversion. It happens at the same time. The moment there's regeneration, the moment there is repentance and faith, the moment there is justification, the moment there is adoption, is the same moment when there is sealing. It is not something that happens at a later point in time when a believer gets his act together and starts doing something special for the, for the church that all of a sudden a special sealing of the Spirit takes place. Scripture does not teach that whatsoever. So again, we've looked at this diagram before, that if we look at the application of salvation according to chronology, and that yellow circle represents the moment of conversion, you have these different components that by definition are different, but according to time are indistinguishable. They all happen at the same time, instantaneously. But if you look at it according to causation, and you could look at it According to the Ordo Salutis, how does this happen according to logic, according to the causation of different acts of God in the application of salvation? You, you could look at it this way, that regeneration is what sets it all in motion. And through these steps of regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, adoption, that sealing occurs after these things, certainly after faith. Because if we go back, to our text in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Having believed, you were sealed, suggesting a little bit of causation there. But the big idea here is still this. Sealing occurs at the moment of conversion. Not a future point in time. If you are converted today, if you are in Christ today, you've already been sealed. You don't wait for it. You don't wait for it. Number three, sealing is instantaneous in nature. Sealing is instantaneous in nature. And and, and we get this by looking at the nature of the verbs that are used here. The three texts, 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22, Ephesians 1, 13, Ephesians 4, 30. In each of these cases, as Paul writes to believers, to the saints, he refers to sealing as a past act. It's done. It's complete. In other words, it's, it's, it's not something that is a process. You go through a long process of sealing. It's not something that is a future expectation. No, if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, this has been done. It was done as a declarative act. It was instantaneous in nature. It is actually not something we even experience And we certainly don't precipitate it. This is all of God's mercy. It cannot be sought. It can only be received by grace through faith in Christ alone. One writer says this, Paul is stating a fact. Not describing a conscious Christian experience Our response to Paul's statement ought to believe it rather than attempt to find it in experience. What he's saying is this. Some of you might be there worried about your salvation because you've come across these texts that speak about sealing and you're trying to to rack your brain, trying to figure out 
was there a moment when I felt fuzzy? Or, you know, maybe some kind of blow against me as he's making his impression, right? Something that, that I felt, that I was conscious of, and I can't remember that. And, and you're worried about not being able to trace it to some moment of feeling. And what this writer rightly says is, this is not something that challenges us to try and find it in experience. This is something we must believe by faith. We must understand that if you have believed the gospel, if you've been regenerate, if you're in Christ, this has already happened to you. Believe it. Believe it. Don't keep seeking it. Because if if you're in Christ and you keep trying to seek it, what you're essentially doing is saying, I don't believe what God's word has said about this. I still need something more. The word of God is clear. If you are in Christ, it has already happened. And all that this sealing brings is already yours. Already. Number four. And this is what we already have talked about. Number four is this. Sealing is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, You are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You see that that preposition there, with. We see it also in Ephesians 4 verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. And again, this communicates the idea that the Holy Spirit is the means or the instrument by which the seal is made. Now again, you have to be careful about pressing these analogies too far. These are the best analogies that are available to help us understand Don't press it too far in some literal sense. This is a a metaphorical idea. But you could look at it this way. God is the one who has a signet finger or a signet ring on his finger, and that is the Holy Spirit, and that is the instrument that makes that unique signature in us. That unique mark. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. Again, Harold Honer says, God is the one who seals. Christ is the sphere in which the seal is done. And the Holy Spirit is the instrument of the seal. Notice this. It's not just that the Holy Spirit is the instrument. He is the seal itself. And that's where we get our idea of the pledge. It's it's not that... The spirit was used to make a mark and then the ring is taken away and all that's left is an impression. That's part of the, the act. But the, the truth that Paul wants us to understand is that something remains with us. In fact, the Holy Spirit himself remains with us. And that's why Paul transitions from the word picture of the signet ring making a mark in wax to the concept of a pledge that has been given as a down payment. Because the one is good only so far as it goes. And then at that moment, the next word picture comes in to express the, full, the fuller idea. And it's this, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. He becomes that pledge. He remains with us. We see this in Ephesians 1 verse 14. That the spirit of promise is given as a pledge of our inheritance. We see it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 5. The Holy Spirit is a pledge. Thus if you are in Christ. 
a spiritual seal, a signature, a unique spiritual mark of ownership and identity has been impressed on you by the Holy Spirit. But not only that, He Himself is the impression. He Himself now remains with you, abides in you. Number five, sealing guarantees final redemption. It guarantees final redemption. Ephesians 1 verse 13 to 14, we read these, these words. That he's the Holy Spirit of promise. He's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. God already owns you. And the fact that you have the Spirit is that commitment that He will own you to the end. Ephesians 4 verse 30, you are sealed for the day of redemption. Marked for that day with all of God's intention. And understand this, that there is nothing that God can do to make His intent more clear. Those whom he has sealed will one day be finally revealed or redeemed. He will never forfeit his down payment. In a world where people renege all the time on their word, who make all kinds of commitments and maybe even pay a little bit here and there, and and in our culture, in our context, that happens all the time, and people renege. That is not God. That is not God. He is faithful and true. He is faithful and true. He never renegotiates a contract. He never takes back His word. Never walks it back. Not an iota. He always finishes what He begins. And it is this concept of the pledge that is revealed to us as a wonderful balm to our souls. That listen, men, assurance of your final redemption is not tied to you. (laughs) Praise God. It is tied to the integrity of God. And if He is to allow even one to fall away. He has broken his pledge. One writer says this, this, the crowning experience of God's work of grace in the believer is entirely of God. The good work begun in the Christian by God will be carried through to completion by God until it reaches perfection In the day of Christ Jesus. Not only is everything attributed to grace. But it is toward this glorious goal. That God's redemptive activity. Is all along directed. What confidence and certainty. The assurance assurance should give us. That this work is altogether of God. And not in any measure of man. As it is God's work. It will be done. There can be no place for failure. Or frustration, end quote. Wayne Grudem says, quote, All who have the Holy Spirit within them, all who are truly born again, 
have God's unchanging promise and guarantee that the inheritance of eternal life in heaven will certainly be theirs. God's own faithfulness is pledged to bring this about. End quote. So you might wonder, why is it important to study the concept of pledge? These three texts. The purpose for this revelation in God's word is to comfort us and, and God is saying the very fact that he, I have given to you my Holy Spirit is my commitment to you. I base my word, my character upon this, that I will bring this work that I began in you to its completion. You can count on it. And you know, it is so much better to be motivated by that than by fear. That leads us to the next one, number six. Sealing serves multiple purposes. I could highlight several, but let me quickly highlight three. Sealing provides assurance. This concept of salvation is intended to give us sealing. Because remember, as we looked at this concept, it emphasized ownership. It emphasized authentication. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8 that because we've been given this pledge, which is the Holy Spirit, now that the Holy Spirit indwells us, We do not have a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So the fact that we've been given this this pledge, this spirit is intended to keep this ministry of testimony going that, look, this is the gospel. What I start, I finish. I can never fail. Number two, sealing motivates holiness. Sealing motivates holiness. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You can look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 as well. I, I won't read that. Read it later. But in both these cases, Paul points to the fact that it's when we realize that the Spirit indwells us. That, that the Spirit has been given to us as a commitment a pledge that that motivates us. And as I said before, and even as Paul emphasized in Ephesians 40 verse, 4 verse 30, is that this is the best motivation to holiness. Not trying to keep people under fear that if you step the wrong way, if you say the wrong word, if you do something wrong, it's all gone. You'll have to repent and come to Christ all over again. And you know what? Maybe He won't accept you the next time. Now this is... Paul motivating us to say, look at what you've been given. Look at this wonderful treasure, this promise, this guarantee. Why would you act contrary? Why? With such privilege? With such a promise? You want to go and live in the pig pen? You want to give in to that temptation? You want to go back to put yourself under the slavery to that sin again? See what's been given to you. Spirit. Thirdly, sealing glorifies God as an outcome. We see this in Ephesians 1 verse 13 to 14. Why has God done this? And we see it in the very last phrase of this sentence as Paul wraps up 
that long 202-word sentence, he says this, you are sealed to the praise of His glory. God's glory is dependent upon Him fulfilling His word. God's glory is connected to the fact that He's faithful. God's glory is connected to the fact that He has to finish what He began. What he began and He will. And that's why this is all to the praise of His glory. God's, as Woodcock says, God's completion of His redemptive program and taking possession of His people will inherently bring praise to His glory. God has designed it this way to put His glory on display so that as we go through this plan of redemption and as we get to that final day of redemption which God has promised to us, we will, we, we will step back and we will look on this glorious plan and all that God has done and marvel at the greatness, the power, the majesty, the wisdom, and the love of God. Finally, number seven, sealing is essential for salvation. Paul says this in Romans 8 verse 9. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. To lack the seal of the Spirit is to lack the ownership of God. To lack the seal of the Spirit is to lack His indwelling presence. To lack the seal of the Spirit is to be without hope. If you don't have the Spirit, if you don't have that pledge, if you have not been imprinted by Him, if you are not owned by God, I can tell you right now, if you stay in that in that state, you have no hope. It doesn't matter what good works you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of a husband you are, whether you've raised good kids, contributed to society, done great things for the world. It doesn't matter. It does not matter when you stand before God and give an account. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, You do not belong to Him, and He will say to you, Away from me, I never knew you. There is a solution. It's to flee to Christ. In fact, that even comes through in Ephesians 1 verse 13, where Paul explains the causation of this. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed. Do you believe that gospel? Do you believe in Jesus Christ and what He did for you on the cross? Do you believe that apart from Him you have no hope? Do you look on Him and say, everything that He provides is everything that I need. I don't need anything more. There's nothing less. I need what He accomplished. That's my hope. My only hope. So that one day when I do stand before a perfectly righteous God and He says, why should I let you into my heaven? I would say, Jesus Christ. Because of what He has done for me. I believe it. I cling to it. I identify with it. 
I love it. I cherish it. It's all that I can offer. Not me. My hands are empty. But Him and His his accomplishment, that's what I cling to. And that's the right answer. You believe in that? Don't leave this room tonight. If you don't, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. In a world that even now is falling apart out of panic, out of fear of death. In, 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 in a world in which we live that is terrified that it cannot control its destiny. We have your sure word. And it is as faithful as you are. And it tells us the gospel. It tells us the way of salvation. And it gives us comfort and hope. And contentment and confidence. It gives us security. It gives us this guarantee that when we look at our our lives, we, we don't try to pin our confidence on our achievements, on how much money we give in the offering plate, how long we pray in our closets, how many chapters of the Bible we read every day. Those things are all good, but we don't pin our confidence on those things. We pin our confidence onto Jesus Christ and, and, and onto His accomplishment and how that accomplishment is applied to us in the Spirit. And you have said, my Spirit is given to you. That is the pledge of your assurance. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that and we pray that that reality would motivate us to greater praise and love for you, for who you are, the great God that you are, and would motivate us not grieve that spirit who has been given to us. We are so privileged. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit within us. Amen.